the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf. We welcome as our guest today, John the Twenty-Third, and his speech at the opening of the Second Vatican Council. On the 11th of October, 1962, Pope John XXIII opened the Second Vatican Council, and after the Mass, he gave an address to all the Council Fathers gathered there and representatives of the many organizations and different governments who were there present. And the speech began with three words, which gives us the name of this famous speech, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices. In this speech, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, John XXIII laid really the foundation of the Council's work and circumscribed its path and tried to infuse into it a certain vision, a certain spirit by which their work and deliberations should be guided. Now, many people today stress how important the Second Vatican Council is, and in fact we are still celebrating the 50th uh, anniversary of the time of the Council. And yet, even today, many people who invoke the Council, and many people who don't like the Council, well, they haven't read the documents, and they haven't paid much attention to one of the very most important events of the entire council, and that is precisely the reading of Gaudet Mater Ecclesia by John at the very opening of the first session. So we're going to hear Gaudet Mater Ecclesia today, and I'll read it for you. And as I read, you should tune your ears to catch a few things. For example, um, he talks about, very clearly, about those who are with the church and those who are not with the church and what results from being with or against or not at least not with the church he recalls how he announced the council he said it was it had to do with a flash of inspiration uh, he speaks very clearly that he hopes this council will turn everyone's minds to heavenly things he talks about the state of the church at the time uh, as he saw it of course listen for how he speaks about how the world has in the past, uh, in the present, impeded the work of the church, but how now uh, the church can speak to the whole world without being impeded. I think he's probably talking about the development of modern social communications, the tools of communication. Remember that it was right around the time of the Second Vatican Council, I think, that Telstar, the first big communication satellite, ever went up. I may be wrong about that, but I think it was about that time. John deals with uh, the sole important purpose in life, attaining heaven, both as individuals and as societies. It's interesting that I think still functioning in the back of John's mind is probably the social kingship of Christ, which has been somewhat attenuated uh, since the Second Vatican Council. He talks about how the church in the modern considers the modern world without losing sight of the past. I think this is one of the most important things that John talks about in here, and he talks about it with really, really clear language. For John, the council is concerned with passing along the church's true teaching. This council, on the one hand, isn't supposed to rehash or really focus on one point of doctrine or another. Instead, um, John is concerned with how the church passes on all of the church's true and authentic 
teaching in its entirety, in continuity with the past. I think the money quote comes well along when John says that the whole of the church's teaching must be kept in its entirety, in its preciseness. Everything has to be in conformity with authentic doctrine, but without changing its substance. And without changing its substance, then propose it in pastoral terms. He uses the word pastoral in here, but what he means by pastoral, he does not define. Maybe he, he tries to get a little bit at something of a definition. Then later on when he talks about the contrast, be the way the way the church used to teach things or combat errors and the way that she is doing it now. For example, he talks about how today uh, the church prefers to use against errors, and he admits that errors abound, uh, while the church uses against errors the medicine of mercy rather than of condemnation. And he adds, and you can decide for yourself whether this is maybe a little naive or a little overly optimistic, he adds that even in those days, remember back in the 60s, men were of their own accord figuring out that some things were wrong and that certain ways of life and certain things against God's will um, they were being left a, left behind. Of their, they were men were leaving things behind of their own accord. Yeah. Well, he may have at that time have been thinking perhaps of civil rights issues, or maybe the Cold War, or nuclear arms, or the way that a, a war had absorbed an entire world not too many you know years before. But it's hard to understand that. Um, optimism perhaps in looking around at what we have going on today. Well, anyway, let's hear Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, John the 23rd's famous speech at the opening of the Second Vatican Council on the 11th of October in 1962. <laughs> Venerabiles fratres, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, quod singulari divine providentiae munere, optatissimus iam dies iluxit, quo auspice dei para virgine, cuius materna dignitas hodie festo ritu recolitur, hic ad beati petri sepulcrum concilium ecumenicum vaticanum secundum solemniter initium capit. Universa concilia, sive viginti, venerable brothers, Mother Church rejoices that by the singular gift of divine providence the longed-for day has finally dawned when, under the auspices of the Virgin Mother of God, whose maternal dignity is commemorated on this feast, the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council is being solemnly opened here beside St. Peter's tomb. The councils, both the twenty ecumenical ones and the numberless others, also important, of a provincial or regional character which have been held down through the years, all prove clearly the vigor of the Catholic Church and are recorded as shining lights in her annals. Thus calling this vast assembly of bishops, the latest and humble successor to the Prince of the Apostles who is addressing you, intended to assert once again the magisterium which is unfailing and endures until the end of time, in order that this magisterium, 
taking into account the errors, the requirements, and the opportunities of our time, might be presented in exceptional form to all men throughout the world. It is but natural that in opening this universal council, we should like to look to the past and to listen to its voices, whose echo we like to hear in the memories and the merits of the more recent and ancient pontiffs, our predecessors. These are solemn and venerable voices throughout the East and the West, from the 4th century to the Middle Ages, and from there to modern times, which have handed down their witness to those councils. They are voices which proclaim in perennial fervor the triumph of that divine and human institution, the Church of Christ, which from Jesus takes its name, its grace, its meaning. Side by side with these motives for spiritual joy, however, there has also been, for more than nineteen centuries, a cloud of sorrows and of trials. Not without reason did the ancient Simeon announce to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that prophecy which has been, and still is true, behold, this child is set for the fall and the resurrection of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted. And Jesus himself, when he grew up, clearly outlined the manner in which the world would treat his person down through the succeeding centuries with the mysterious words, He who hears you hears me, and with those others that the same evangelist relates, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The great problem confronting the world after almost two thousand years remains unchanged. Christ is ever resplendent as the center of history and of life. Men are either with him and his church, and then they enjoy light, goodness, order, and peace, or else they are without him or against him, and deliberately opposed to his church, and then they give rise to confusion, to bitterness in human relations, and to the constant danger of fratricidal wars. Ecumenical councils, whenever they are assembled, are a solemn celebration of the union of Christ and his church, and hence lead to the universal radiation of truth, to the proper guidance of individuals in domestic and social life, to the strengthening of spiritual energies for a perennial uplift toward real and everlasting goodness. The testimony of this extraordinary magisterium of the church in the succeeding epochs of these twenty centuries of Christian history stands before us collected in numerous and imposing volumes, which are the sacred patrimony of our ecclesiastical archives here in Rome and in the more noted libraries of the entire world. As regards the initiative for the great event which gathers us here, it will suffice to repeat as historical documentation our personal account of the first sudden bringing up in our heart and lips of the simple words ecumenical council. We uttered those words in the presence of the Sacred College of Cardinals on that memorable January 25, 1959, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, in the Basilica dedicated to him. It was completely unexpected, like a flash of heavenly light, shedding sweetness in eyes and hearts. And at the same time it gave rise to a great fervor throughout the world in expectation of the holding of the Council. There have elapsed three years of laborious preparation, 
during which a wide and profound examination was made regarding modern conditions of faith and religious practice and of Christian and especially Catholic vitality. These years have seemed to us a first sign, an initial gift of celestial grace. Illuminated by the light of this council, the Church, we confidently trust, will become greater in spiritual riches, and gaining the strength of new energies therefrom, she will look to the future without fear. In fact, by bringing herself up to date where required, and by the wise organization of mutual cooperation, the Church will make men, families, and peoples really turn their minds to heavenly things. And thus the holding of the council becomes a motive for whole-hearted thanksgiving to the giver of every good gift, in order to celebrate with joyous canticles the glory of Christ our Lord, the glorious and immortal King of ages and of peoples. The opportuneness of holding the council is, moreover, venerable brothers, another subject which it is useful to propose for your consideration. Namely, in order to render our joy more complete, we wish to narrate before this great assembly our assessment of the happy circumstances under which the ecumenical council commences. In the daily exercise of our pastoral office, we sometimes have to listen, much to our regret, to voices of persons who, though burning with zeal, are not endowed with too much sense of discretion or measure. In these modern times, they can see nothing but prevarication and ruin. They say that our era, in comparison with past eras, is getting worse, and they behave as though they had learned nothing from history, which is, nonetheless, the teacher of life. They behave as though at the time of former councils everything was a full triumph for the Christian idea and life and for proper religious liberty. We feel we must disagree with those prophets of gloom, who are always forecasting disaster as though the end of the world were at hand. In the present order of things, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which, by men's own efforts and even beyond their very expectations, are directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the Church. It is easy to discern this reality if we consider attentively the world of today, which is so busy with politics and controversies in the economic order that it does not find time to attend to the care of spiritual reality with which the Church's magisterium is concerned. Such a way of acting is certainly not right and must justly be disapproved. It cannot be denied, however, that these new conditions of modern life have at least the advantage of having eliminated those innumerable obstacles by which, at one time, the sons of this world impeded the free action of the Church. In fact, it suffices to leaf even cursorily through the pages of ecclesiastical history to note clearly how the ecumenical councils themselves, while constituting a series of true glories for the Catholic Church, were often held to the accompaniment of most serious difficulties and sufferings, because of the undue interference of civil authorities. The princes of this world, indeed, sometimes in all sincerity, intended thus to protect the Church. But more frequently this occurred not without spiritual damage and danger, since their interest therein was guided by the views of a selfish 
and perilous policy. In this regard, we confess to you that we feel most poignant sorrow over the fact that very many bishops so dear to us are noticeable here today by their absence because they are imprisoned for their faithfulness to Christ or impeded by other restraints. The thought of them impels us to raise most fervent prayer to God. Nevertheless, we see today, not without great hopes and to our immense consolation, that the Church, finally freed from so many obstacles of a profane nature such as trammeled her in the past, can from this Vatican Basilica, as if from a second apostolic cenacle, and through your intermediary, raise her voice resonant with majesty and greatness. The greatest concern of the Ecumenical Council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. That doctrine embraces the whole of man, composed as he is of body and soul, and, since he is a pilgrim on this earth, it commands him to tend always toward heaven. This demonstrates how our mortal life is to be ordered in such a way as to fulfill our duties as citizens of earth and of heaven, and thus to attain the aim of life as established by God, that is, all men, whether taken singly or as united in society, today have the duty of tending ceaselessly during their lifetime toward the attainment of heavenly things, and to use, for this purpose only, the earthly goods, the employment of which must not prejudice their eternal happiness. The Lord has said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. The word first expresses the direction in which our thoughts and energies must move. We must not, however, neglect the other words of this exhortation of our Lord, namely, And all these things shall be given you besides. In reality, there always have been in the church, and there are still today, those who, while seeking the practice of evangelical perfection with all their might, do not fail to make themselves useful to society. Indeed, it is from their constant example of life and their charitable undertakings that all that is highest and noblest in human society takes its strength and growth. In order, however, that this doctrine may influence the numerous fields of human activity with reference to individuals, to families, and to social life, it is necessary, first of all, that the Church should never depart from the sacred patrimony of truth received from the Fathers. But at the same time, she must ever look to the present, to the new conditions and new forms of life introduced into the modern world, which have opened up new avenues to the Catholic apostolate. For this reason, the Church has not watched inertly the marvelous progress of the discoveries of human genius, and has not been backward in evaluating them rightly. But while following these developments, she does not neglect to admonish men so that, over and above sense, perceived things, they may raise their eyes to God, the source of all wisdom and all beauty, and may they never forget the most serious command, The Lord thy God shall thou worship and him only shall thou serve. So that it may happen that the fleeting fascination of visible things should impede true progress. The manner in which sacred doctrine is spread, this having been established, it becomes clear how much is expected from the council in regard to doctrine. That is, 
The 21st Ecumenical Council, which will draw upon the effective and important wealth of juridical, liturgical, apostolic, and administrative experiences, wishes to transmit the doctrine pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion, which throughout twenty centuries, notwithstanding difficulties and contrasts, has become the common patrimony of men. It is a patrimony not well received by all, but always a rich treasure available to men of good will. Our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure, as if we were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us, pursuing thus the path which the Church has followed for twenty centuries. The salient point of this council is not, therefore, a discussion of one article or another of the fundamental doctrine of the Church, which has repeatedly been taught by the Fathers and by ancient and modern theologians, and which is presumed to be well known and familiar to all. For this a council was not necessary. But from the renewed, serene, and tranquil adherence to all the teaching of the Church in its entirety and its preciseness, as it still shines forth in the Acts of the Council of Trent and First Vatican Council, the Christian, Catholic, and Apostolic spirit of the whole world expects a step forward toward a doctrinal penetration and formation of consciousness in faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine, which, however, should be studied and expounded through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern thought. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another, and it is the latter that must be taken into great consideration with patience if necessary, everything being measured in the forms and proportions of a magisterium which is predominantly pastoral in character. At the outset of the Second Vatican Council, it is evident, as always, that the truth of the Lord will remain forever. We see, in fact, as one age succeeds another, that the opinions of men follow one another and exclude each other, and often errors vanish as quickly as they arise, like fog before the sun. The Church has always opposed these errors. Frequently she has condemned them with the greatest severity. Nowadays, however, the spouse of Christ prefers to make use of the medicine of mercy rather than that of severity. She considers that she meets the needs of the present day by demonstrating the validity of her teaching rather than by condemnations. Not, certainly, that there is a lack of fallacious teaching, opinions, and dangerous concepts to be guarded against and dissipated, but these are so obviously in contrast with the right norm of honesty and have produced such lethal fruits that by now it would seem that men of themselves are inclined to condemn them, particularly those ways of life which despise God and his law or place excessive confidence in technical progress and a well-being based exclusively on the comforts of life. They are ever more deeply convinced of the paramount dignity of the human person and of his perfectioning as well as of the duties which that implies. Even more important, the experience has taught men that violence inflicted on others, the might of arms and political domination, are of no help at all in finding a happy solution to the grave problems which afflict them. That being so, the Catholic Church 
raising the torch of religious truth by means of this ecumenical council, desires to show herself to be the loving mother of all, benign, patient, full of mercy and goodness toward the children separated from her. To the human race, oppressed by so many difficulties, she says like Peter of old to the poor man who begged alms from him, Silver and gold I have none, but what I have, that I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. In other words, the church does not offer to the men of today riches that pass, nor does she promise them a merely earthly happiness, but she distributes to them the goods of divine grace, which, raising men to the dignity of sons of God, are the most efficacious safeguards and aids toward a more human life. She opens the fountain of her life-giving doctrine, which allows men, enlightened by the light of Christ, to understand well what they really are, what their lofty dignity and their purpose are, and finally, through her children, she spreads everywhere the fullness of Christian charity, than which nothing is more effective in eradicating the seeds of discord, nothing more efficacious in promoting concord, just peace, and the brotherly unity of all. The Church's solicitude to promote and defend truth derives from the fact that, according to the plan of God, who wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, men without the assistance of the whole of revealed doctrine cannot reach a complete and firm unity of minds, with which are associated true peace and eternal salvation. Unfortunately, the entire Christian family has not fully attained to this visible unity in truth. The Catholic Church, therefore, considers it her duty to work actively so that there may be fulfilled the great mystery of that unity which Jesus Christ invoked with fervent prayer from his heavenly Father on the eve of his sacrifice. She rejoices in peace, knowing well that she is intimately associated with that prayer, and then exults greatly at seeing that invocation extend its efficacy with salutary fruit even among those who are outside her fold. Indeed, if one considers well this same unity which Christ implored for his church, it seems to shine, as it were, with a triple ray of beneficent supernatural light, namely, the unity of Catholics among themselves, which must always be kept exemplary and most firm, the unity of prayers and ardent desires with which those Christians separated from this apostolic see aspire to be united with us, and the unity in esteem and respect for the Catholic Church which animates those who follow non-Christian religions. In this regard, it is a source of considerable sorrow to see that the greater part of the human race, although all men who are born were redeemed by the blood of Christ, does not yet participate in those sources of divine grace which exist in the Catholic Church. Hence the Church, whose light illumines all, whose strength of supernatural unity redounds to the advantage of all humanity, is rightly described in these beautiful words of St. Cyprian. The Church, surrounded by divine light, spreads her rays over the entire earth. This light, however, is one and unique, and shines everywhere, without causing any separation in the unity of the body. She extends her branches over the whole world by her fruitfulness. She sends ever farther afield her rivulets. Nevertheless, the head is always one, the origin one, for she is the one mother abundantly fruitful. We are born of her, are nourished by her milk. 
we live of her spirit. Venerable brothers, such is the aim of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, which, while bringing together the Church's best energies and striving to have men welcome more favorably the good tidings of salvation, prepares, as it were, and consolidates the path toward that unity of mankind which is required as a necessary foundation in order that the earthly city may be brought to the resemblance of that heavenly city where truth reigns, charity is the law, and whose extent is eternity. Now our voice is directed to you, venerable brothers in the Episcopate. Behold, we are gathered together in this Vatican Basilica, upon which hinges the history of the church, where heaven and earth are closely joined, here near the tomb of Peter, and near so many of the tombs of our holy predecessors, whose ashes in this solemn hour seem to thrill in mystic exultation. The council now beginning rises in the church like daybreak, a forerunner of most splendid light. It is now only dawn, and already at this first announcement of the rising day how much sweetness fills our heart. Everything here breathes sanctity and arouses great joy. Let us contemplate the stars, with which their brightness augment the majesty of this temple. These stars, according to the testimony of the Apostle John, are you, and with you we see shining around the tomb of the Prince of the Apostles the golden candelabra. That is, the church is confided to you. We see here with you important personalities, present in an attitude of great respect and cordial expectation, having come together in Rome from the five continents to represent the nations of the world. We might say that heaven and earth are united in the holding of the council, the saints of heaven to protect our work, the faithful of earth continuing in prayer to the Lord, and you, seconding the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order that the work of all may correspond to the modern expectations and needs of the various peoples of the world. This requires of you serenity of mind, brotherly concord, moderation in proposals, dignity in discussion, and wisdom of deliberation. God grant that your labors and your work, toward which the eyes of all peoples and the hopes of the entire world are turned, may abundantly fulfill the aspirations of all. Almighty God, in thee we place all our confidence, not trusting in our own strength. Look down benignly upon these pastors of thy church. May the light of thy supernal grace aid us in taking decisions and in making laws. Graciously hear the prayers which we pour forth to thee in unanimity of faith, of voice, and of mind. O Mary, help of Christians, help of bishops! of whose love we have recently had particular proof in thy temple of Loreto, where we venerated the mystery of the Incarnation. Dispose all things for a happy and propitious outcome, and with thy spouse, St. Joseph, the holy apostles Peter and Paul, St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist, intercede for us to God. To Jesus Christ, our most amiable Redeemer, immortal King of peoples and of times, be love, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Terrena civitas in similitudinem componatur civitatis celestis, cuius rex veritas, cuius lex caritas, cuius modus eternitas. Nunc autemos nostrum patet ad vos venerabiles in episcopatu fratres, 
Ecce nos jamin unum congregatos in hac Vaticana Basilica, ubi ecclesiae historiae cardo verditur, ubi nunc celum etera artissimo conjuguntur fedre. Hic ad sancti petrum sepulcrum, ad tot sanctorum decessorum nostrorum tubulos, quorum cineres hac solemniora quasi arcano codam fremitu exultare videntur. Quod incohatur concilium, veluti dies in ecclesia oritur splendidissima luce refulgens, tantum aurora est, et iam primi orientis solis rarii quam suaviter animos aficiu nostros. Omnia hic sanctitatem spirant, letitiam excitant. Contemplamur enim stellas claritate sua maestatem huius templi ad daugere, que teste Ioane Apostolo vos estis. Et peros quasi aurea lucere candelabra circa principis apostolorum sepulcrum, que sunt ecclesiae vobis concredite. Simul cernimus viros dignitate amplissimos, quie quinque continentibus terris Romam convenerunt, suarum nationum personam acturi, quique omni cum reverentia atque humanissima cum expectatione hic adsunt. Quare plane dicendumst celites et homines ad celebrandum concilium consociatam conferre operam, beatorum celitum partes hesunt, ut labores tueantur nostros. Christi Fidelium ut flagrantes preces ad Deum fundre pergant, vestrum omnium ut supernis Spiritus Sancti impulsionibus prompte obsecuti ad lacriter detis operam, ut labores vestri variarum gentium optatis ac necessitatibus apprime respondeant. Hec ut contingant a vobis postulantur serena animorum pax, fraterna concordia, ceptorum teberantia, disceptationum dignitas, deliberationum omnium sapientia. Utinam studia atque opera vestra, in que non tantum populorum oculi, sed spes quoque universi orbi sunt converse, expectationem cumulate expleant. Omnipotens Deus, in te nostris difisi viribus, fiduciam totam reponimus, super hos ecclesiae tue pastores bininus respice, superne tue gratiae lumen nobis adsit consilium capientibus, adsit leges ferentibus, et quas una fide, uno ore, uno animo ad te preces fundimus, libenter exaudi. O Maria, auxilium Christianorum, auxilium Episcoporum, cuius amorem nuper in lauretano templo tuo ubi incarnationis mysterium venerari placuit peculiari modo experti sumus, omnia ad letum faustum prosperum exitum tua ope dispone. Tuque una cum sancto Iosef sponso tuo, cum sanctis Petro e Paolo Apostolis, sanctis Ioane Baptista et Evangelista, apudeum intercede pro nobis. Iesu Cristo, Redemptori nostro amantissimo, Regi immortali populorum et temporum, Amor potestas et gloria, In secula seculorum. Amen.
That was John the 23rd speaking to all the Council Fathers gathered at the very beginning of the Second Vatican Council. This was the famous speech, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, of 11 October 1962. You can hear how hope rings throughout the piece, but I can't help but shake the feeling that maybe there's a little naivete there too. There's a real optimism about humanity, which, yes, I share, uh, but perhaps maybe it's my reading of Augustine over the years that uh, has pointed out to me also the real contrasts between the eternal city and the earthly city, which John the John the 23rd himself invokes. He uses that image uh, from Augustine. And he even quotes Augustine. Where is it? Ut terrena civitas in similitudinem componatur civitatis celestis. And here's the quote. Cuius rex veritas, cuius lex caritas, cuius modus eternitas. In order that the earthly city may be brought to the resemblance of that heavenly city where truth reigns, charity is the law and whose extent is eternity. It's one of Augustine's letters, letter 138. So at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, everything is ringing with uh, joy and light and optimism and a great deal of hope. And uh, I think uh, looking 50 years back, we have to ask ourselves how things have gone. And in doing so... Um, I don't think we're being you know, mean-spirited or cowardly or anything like that and uh, pusillanimous in, in respect to the council. I think we have to be realistic to test the fruits and figure out what has actually happened. Um, I turn our attention also back to about how John talks about, um, he says, not now, let's see, now certainly, it's not that there is a lack of fallacious teaching, opinions, and dangerous concepts to be guarded against and dissipated, but these are so obviously in contrast with the nor right norm of honesty and have produced such lethal fruits that by now it would seem that men of themselves are inclined to condemn them, particularly, now get this, those ways of life which despise God and his law or place excessive confidence in technical progress and a well-being based exclusively in the comforts of life. Well, that's John the 23rd back in 1962. And now you, you know, ask yourself, how about our ways of life today, which despise God and his law or technological progress? Do we have a society which maybe hasn't, has, has set aside, you know, too much confidence in technology? Um, have we really attained has the church really helped society attained a way of life that isn't based exclusively on the comforts of life you know john the 23rd back in the day he certainly was anticipating the problems that we face today but i think what we have is exactly the opposite of what he was talking about or hoping for and i think we all have to ask ourselves why um john also you know spoke very much about the desired unity of all of all in the church. And um, what pops into my head is, of course, that if we don't have a, a, a certain trumpet being sounded by all of our shepherds, by all of our pastors, and real unity of doctrine and so forth, how is that going to happen? You know, getting back to St. Augustine, um, whom John quoted in Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, there's a, a great quote from a sermon, from Sermon 46, 
where he talks about, um, Augustine talks about pastors, who good pastors are, and what their voices do in uniting people. And it comes back to heresy, right? The quote is this, all good pastors are such in and through Christ. In other words, you can't be a good pastor if you're not united with Christ. So all good pastors are such in and through Christ, who is the unus pastor, the one pastor. And their voices are united with his voice so that they do not teach heresy. Sint ergo omnes in pastore uno, udicant vocem pastoris unam, quam audiant oves, et sequantur pastorum suum, et non ilum aut ilum sed unum, et omnes in ilo unam vocem dicant, diversas voces non habeant. And he, he quotes in here the first chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Augustine says, here it is in English, so let them all be in the one shepherd and speak with the one voice of the shepherd, which the sheep may hear and follow their shepherd. Not this or that shepherd, but the one shepherd. And in him, let them all speak with one voice, not with conflicting voices. Not with conflicting voices. But we've had so many conflicting voices over the decades, haven't we? And I'm not sure... I'm not sure how this is all to be so, all to be sorted out, but going back to Pope John, Pope John the Twenty Third, his fervent desire at the very beginning of the Council is that we find a way in the modern world to present all that the Church wants to teach in perfect continuity and in completeness. Uh, in new ways, but preserving always the substance, not sacrificing anything in the change of style, not sliding into error, in other words, or not having all sorts of divided voices about what the church teaches, but one voice so that the sheep can be fed properly. And effectively what Augustine is saying here, uh, in that quote that I gave you, is that heretics are devoid of the vox pastoris. They do not have the voice of the pastor. They are, we are good teachers and good sound teachers insofar as we conform ourselves to Christ and his voice and holy church teaching on faith and morals is Christ himself teaching. In order not to be heretics, in order to be good pastors, in order to be good shepherds of the flock, we have to conform ourselves to the actual teaching of the church in continuity with the way that always has been. This is the desire of John at the beginning of the council. And so we have to ask ourselves how well we are doing with this. Well, now that I've had a little rant, um, please come and visit at the blog, Father Z's blog. Um, that's at the old address, wdtprs.com, whiskey, delta, tango, papa, romeo, sierra.com. That's what does the prayer really say. Uh, these days I'm just calling it Father Z's blog because that whole business about what the prayer, what does the prayer really say and all the translation stuff that I did for so many years, a lot of the work on that has really come to its conclusion. So maybe just Father Z's blog is enough for now. You can also find me just by Googling Father Z. You can look up Father Z online, one word, 
Com as well. There are always interesting discussions going on. We have a little fun. Sometimes we have a little controversy, but it's never dull. So until next time, please pray for me as I will for you. 